Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. This week's guest is the editor-in-chief of The Strand magazine, one of the most established and popular journals of mystery fiction active today. We met at the start of our republishing of the Stories from the Golden Age, a line of 80 books containing 153 short stories and novelettes written by Owen Hubbard in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. We've had several great times at BoucherCon, the big annual mystery thriller convention. He's the author of No Rest for the Dead, a book that I will ask him to talk about a bit later, but suffice it to say, it was a super enjoyable book. He's one of those great guys who makes a great friend, and I'm certainly glad that I can call him my friend. Welcome, Andrew Gooley. Thanks, John. Good to be here with you. So um, I guess the first question is, so the Strand Magazine is obviously mystery, and it's um, we'll go over a little bit of like the different types of mysteries, and we'll get into science fiction mystery. But how long have you been with the Strand Magazine, and how did you end up being editor of the Strand Magazine? Well, it's been uh, 23 years, and I was there from day one, and it was a decision made by the people who were initially launched and were investing in it, and they knew I was interested in old British magazines, and, you know, it, it just, it was born with, in my, from my perspective, out of somebody who was just like, you know, willing to take a big risk and, you know, put my career into something like this, and Fortunately for me, and it worked out, you know, because the magazine just, uh, it touched a chord with people. And I remember when I first started out, I, I would be calling people asking for advice. And you, I felt it was sort of like the members of the, of the light brigade during, uh, <laughs> during the Crimean War, where people were really respecting what we were doing, but they didn't give us much of a chance to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So... Now, this is obviously mystery. Has that always been the genre that you've like catered to or you've been like eclectic on your reading and then just because of this opportunity, you landed with mystery? I've always been a mystery fanatic. I mean, the first real adult thing that I read when I learned how to read was The Mousetrap and Other Plays by Agatha Christie. And if uh, people don't know the wonderful twist, they're in for a treat because when I read that, I said to myself, oh, my God, if, if all mysteries were as good as this, then I'm going to be a huge mystery fan. Unfortunately, you know, it's a very small minority of mysteries are so fantastic and have such a great twist. But uh, that sparked a lifelong interest. And then after that, I got involved in H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and, you know, for the last decade, I'm a big Philip uh, Philip K. Dick fan. So, you know, I love mysteries. I love science fiction. I love something that's well-written. I mean, to give you an example, five years into our publication, we published a short story by uh, Charles Webb, who wrote The Graduate. So, um, you know, we like to keep things different because there are some very good mystery magazines out there. There's uh, Ellery Queen. There's Alfred Hitchcock. But they're very, you know, they're mystery centric. So we want to have, we want to be a little different from our friends at Hitchcock and Ellery Queen by at times publishing science fiction, 
at times just a short story, at times uh, something that's even comical. Wow. Yeah, it's you know, it's definitely different. Now, there's what are the different types of, of mystery? There's the cozies, but kind of like cover the, the main subgenres of mystery and like describe what they are. Do we have only an hour? <laughs> there's the main one. so the main much one. out there. I mean, the main one. I mean, there's just so much out there. There's like genres and then you look at subgenres. But to give, you know, like a, a, a genre 101, there is obviously yeah. the cozy school and that's uh, Agatha Christie and uh, Nagayo Marsh, you know, uh, people, contemporary people like uh, Carolyn Hart and Nancy Picard and uh, even Charlene Harris, they, they, they're very much in the cozy slash teacup type of mystery. And then you get into the opposite end of it, and that's noir. And that's people like Raymond Chandler and Jim Thompson and Cornell Woolrich and James M. Kane. And that's a sort of a post-war disillusionment and post-World War One disillusionment of people. And, you know, a lot of people who are embittered by the Depression and the detective is not somebody who's a dandy like Hercule Poirot, but is somebody who's embittered and somebody who's just is very cynical about the ways of the world. So like a Sam uh, Spade? And then in the past uh, 60 years, yeah, like Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe. Uh, and in the past, uh, you know, 50 to 60 years, we have some of the more psychological mysteries, uh, psychological mysteries and suspense. And one of the great examples of that, which I think, probably millions of people have read has been uh, Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. Um, and then there's also Ruth Rendell ended up uh, being one of the great uh, authors of the psychological and suspense mysteries. Uh, and then there is some of the more pr police procedurals. And, you know, for example, one of the greats is uh, Joseph Wambaugh and Michael Connolly. So there's, you know, I would say among the Four, four categories. There's the cozy, the noir, the police procedural, and then the suspense slash psychological. And from there, we can, it all branches like a family tree into all these little subgenres, like a subgenre of suspense and psychological is romantic suspense. And then a, a subgenre of noir is the sort of, a, you know, comical noir. And then you can even get into the caper mysteries, you know, where, for example, Donald Westlake or Lawrence Block. And then, of course, there's the courtroom and legal mystery, and that's, like, highlighted by John Grisham and Scott Turow. Um, so there, there's just so many. And, you know, there's even a move to class put spy novels like James Bond and, uh, you know, Len Dayton's books and John le Carré with a spy genre part of the the whole mystery genre. So it's a big, big, big world. And two out of every 10 books sold are mysteries. Wow. So, I knew it was big, yeah. but that's like, that's huge. And James Patterson has a lock on everything. I mean, one <laughs> out of 39 books sold is a James Patterson book. Wow. So on the... Um, I wish I was his portfolio manager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now with, with science fiction and mystery... What is that? Is that is its own thing, or is it could be any one of those of those main subgenres that you can have, or what? How's that fit in there? Was that mostly fall under? It can be any one of those genres. I mean, 
there are these pe- pe- authors like Lauren Bukis, and she writes these almost these futuristic mysteries, and she borrows something from H.G. Wells, and she borrows something from uh, Raymond Chandler. So it can be anything. I mean, I, obviously, I don't think we're going to have a courtroom slash science fiction mystery, yeah. but you can't, you you know, there have been practitioners who've written a science fiction mystery that's a part cozy. There have been the, you know, the noir futuristic mysteries. I mean, one of the films, I, 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 I you might have seen this one, and it's a, a Jean-Luc Godard film called Alphaville. And to me, that's one of the great examples of the, detective the wisecracking detective a la philip marlowe and he's in a futuristic city in france called alphaville and he's trying to disable this computer from taking over the whole city and taking and you know controlling the whole city and it sounds like a ridiculous premise but when you see it you kind of it feels very very real and to me uh you know i'm uh, i'm the type of person who when i read science fiction I want to escape, but I also want to have that feeling of the, hmm, this is kind of skirting the, 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 the skirting the part of reality with the, something that's fantastic. Is that, is that, uh, and, is that uh, in France or is it, all, is it, or is it just English subtitles? It's English subtitles and it's, it's called Alphaville and it's with an actor who is, you know, very much the anti-hero person. He does not look like James Bond at all. His name was Eddie Constantine. <laughs> and he ended up reprising the role, I think, when he was in his 70s. <laughs> yeah, this detective called Lemmy Caution. Wow. Uh, but but that, 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 to my, in my view, is like a perfect example of even, I know we're talking about the written word, but it's a perfect example of the melding of noir with science fiction. Right. Yeah, because I know that other science fiction mystery, ones at least that I've read, you know, like uh, Anubis Gates by Tim Powers is, uh, is one of those. Um, and then probably a lot of people have read, which is very much tug-in-cheek, but Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a fun one then. And even Michael Crichton's Andromeda Strain is uh, is. It's even listed as one of the, the top um, mystery science fiction books. So um, I know it's a very popular genre, and that's why I'm interested really in talking with you about some of the, you know, as we progress on this, on this interview, some of the, the do's and don'ts on, um, on how to approach it and even breaking into the area there. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the, your, your book, uh, No Rest of the Day, because I really had fun reading that. So it's got an amazing history, what led up to it, and you were like corralling a bunch of cats to pull this thing off, you know, to make it done because it's a very special kind of book. So describe it a bit there because it's something that if people haven't read it, they should actually, you know, get it and read it because it's really a fun read. Well, I remember I was a few years ago, I was talking to my wife and I said, you know, I, I, I want to feel like a little more, you know, we gave all the money to charity for the book. So right. I told my wife, I said, you know, I want to do something like this again. And I went, spoke to my sister, who was my partner on this project, and she didn't even have to say anything. The look on her face was like, uh, if you do this, I think there's going to be a, a sister kills brother who's an editor on the nightly news because we are not going to do this again <laughs> because it was just so, so, so difficult. Uh, but anyway, uh, out of the, uh, you know, apart from the gallows humor part of it, 
in uh, 2007, it was 10 years since my mom had passed away from lymphoma. And I, you know, over the years, I'd made contact with a lot of writers. And I said to myself, I wanted to do something which would honor my mom's memory and try to raise money for uh, lymphoma leukemia research. So I gathered, you know, 23 authors, most of them were best-selling authors, and I had the idea of, of writing a, uh, an, an anthology of, of just short stories based on a particular theme. And I remember I was discussing this with a friend of mine who was a, a high-ranking publishing executive named Les Pokel. Uh, he was uh, he was the associate publisher of uh, Grand Central Publishing slash Hachette. And uh, he was a very interesting man. And we were chatting. He said, Andrew, an anthology is not going to, you know, if you want to honor your parents, an anthology is not going to work. You need to work on a novel and chapter. And uh, and from then I said, my God, this is not a bad idea. I think he has something. Oh, he has something with that. Because a lot of writers, when you talk to them, they'll say, oh, I can write a novel, but if you want me to write a short story, I just can't do it. So I contacted Alexander McCall Smith, Jeffrey Deaver, uh, Philip Margolin, Tess Gerritsen, Sandra Brown, Faye Kellerman. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of people. And they all signed on to be a part of it. But as you can imagine... I had this attitude of like, let's make this a book that's free form. So rather than like corralling everybody and saying, okay, I have this paint by numbers plan and you're just going to fill in the blanks. What ended up happening was people were writing chapters and at times they're writing chapters out of their sequence, out of sequence, because you had to contact these authors in between projects, you know, an author is being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for a hardcover mystery. They're not just going to drop everything and miss their deadline with their publisher for something which they're being paid only, you know, relatively modest sum. So when all is said and done, it kind of felt like we were, uh, we were like uh, Dr. Frankenstein and his assistant. I think I was the assistant and we we're trying to like cobble together all these parts because I think that there was a, you know, a hand sticking out of the skull and probably a, a knee on an elbow. <laughs> and it was just a very, very, very difficult experience. The authors were fantastic. They were very understandable. I mean, you know, most authors can have a bit of a, hmm, I'm being edited or you're pushing my chapter from the third to the eighth or whatever, or cutting it in half and putting it in another part of the book. But they were they were just wonderful, wonderful people to work with. And the book did very well. We ended up giving a, a half a million dollars to uh, Le- Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And the lab who we gave it to ended up, uh, a little girl's life was saved because they tried that experimental treatment. So uh, it, it was a very enriching experience, but not something I'm I'm interested in getting into again. Because <laughs> I remember a year after that, I, uh, I I went to my dentist and he looked and he said, "You must be really stressed." He's like, "In ten years, you've had only one cavity, and in in this past six months, I found two. <laughs> and I was like, "No rest for the dead." <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just a really fun story, and anybody that likes mystery but this is what what makes it special is that it's one storyline but all these different authors contributing to it 
And like you said, you as Dr. Frankenstein or as his assistant, you know, piecing it all together so it actually has some some actual coherency to it is just amazing. And it's it's just a fun story. It's a great plot premise that you've got there. It has nothing to do with science fiction, but it has everything to do with just a real fun story to read. Thank you. Well, the, the interesting thing about all of this was the main plot point was an idea that I had for a book. And uh, when I first approached John Lascois, I said, John, you're going to write the first chapter. He said, sure, I will. And then I said, okay, what's it going to be about? He said, Andrew, I said, I'm going to write the first chapter. I'm not going to come up with a book. So I had to write the, uh, the uh, prologue and he took it from there. And, you know, so I was very happy to give away the plot idea I had for a book just to, you know, to get the ball rolling. Uh, and of course, uh, David Baldacci was kind enough to write the best introduction that I've I've read in one of these books. No, it was it's it's just a great book. So anyway, so hopefully people, you know, listening to this decide to check it out. No rest of the dead, and uh, I guess you can still get it wherever you get books. Yeah, I mean it's available now. I mean I I, I think the hard I'm not sure if the hardcover is in print, but the. Uh, the trade paperback is in print, and the uh, audiobook is still available, and the digital the yeah. digital edition is also available. Yeah. So, anyway, so this is the Rise of the Future podcast. So, obviously, science fiction creeps into this um, as a as a as a key element. So, science fiction and the mystery, you know, as they as they meld. When we talked before this before this interview, you said, "Oh, yeah, it's like one of the, you love reading it." So, let's talk a bit about science fiction and mystery. And what makes something good versus something that's like, eh, for you? Well, you want something that feels that's, that, you want something that has a feel that it's original. You don't want something to feel that it's derivative. And it's so, so difficult to say that because I, I remember I was trying to work on something myself, a plot for a book. And I was, I wrote like, I think about 3000 words. And then coincidentally, and this sounds crazy, you won't believe me, but I was in my wife's looking through her bookshelf and I found this book and I started to read it. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the same type of plot that this author is writing. So the one ad bit of advice I would have to any aspiring author is to look, check, look, read the basics, read the Jules Verne's, read the H.G. Wells, read Heinlein, uh, read Philip K. Dick. Uh, you know, even uh, even H.P. Lovecraft and read uh, Ray Bradbury, of course, who I think is like the king of science fiction authors. And Ron Hubbard, too. I'm, I'm going to say him, too, because I really enjoy his works. Uh, yeah, of course. And he was fantastic in that genre. He was very inventive. And the reason his books are are, are constantly selling is because he just was very, very imaginative. His stuff was not derivative. When you read when you read some of Hubbard's books, be it the pulp, be it the thriller, you feel like it's somebody who understood what the genre was about, understood about fair play, but also made sure that his voice was an original voice. And that's what I always tell writers whenever I'm teaching, a talking to people in a seminar or a class, or you know, many, many of the times where I'll speak to write, aspiring writers, I'll always say, read the read the basics you know and then from there you'll find your own voice because eventually a person's style will come to them but if you try to push it if you try to just work too hard and too quickly 
you'll find that you're writing with Ray Bradbury's voice or, or, or Asimov's voice. You're not writing with your own. Uh, so th that's, that's the, the, a lot of the advice that I have for writers. I mean, to me, one of the best uh, sci-fi slash mysteries that I've ever read was Minority Report by, uh, by Philip K. Dick, because that has like, that there's a mystery, there's science fiction, it's inventive, it's non-derivative. Uh, so that's like one of the perfect gems. It's like a template of like how to do it, how to be in within two genres, but in a way so that you're not going to confuse an editor. Because when you talk to publishers, when you talk to a lot of my friends who are editors, they'll say, they'll give me stories of like, oh, I passed on the Da Vinci, I passed on the Da Vinci Code, or I passed on the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I'll say, well, how did that happen? And they'll say, well, the big difficulty with it is it confused me. And I said, why would it confuse you? And they'll say, well, there was nothing like it. So for the aspiring crime writer, you need to be sure that, you know, you're not going to confuse people because stories of the girl with the dragon tattoo or some of these other, other very successful books for every one that became a number one bestseller and a phenomenon, there's probably like 10,000 that were just thrown away in the slush pile. Got it. Yeah. I had an interesting chat, um, a few podcasts back with Otto Penzler who, um, I met in much more detail when at, uh, I think it was at your book release party at uh, BoucherCon about 10 years or whatever ago, so ago. Oh, yeah. That was in San Francisco, 2010. Yeah. And um, it's just talking about, you know, for him, you know, what makes a really good mystery and or any type of story. So it's a lot of like what you're saying, too. It's like, you know, I think it's important people understand. And as an editor, because you publish short stories in your magazine, you know, I know a lot of stuff you do, you find these, these unpublished stories from these big names from the, from the past, but you also publish then the, the new writers as well? Exactly. I mean, we publish old authors, we publish new authors. Uh, I mean, oftentimes an example I'll give a new author is, and to me, like nowadays it's kind of vogue to knock Agatha Christie and for people to look into the dark inner sanctum of the human mind, but I think Agatha Christie was one of the greats. And, you know, I think, I think her books will be in print for hundreds of more years. But, you know, yeah. one book where I felt was an example of like, or was an example of something not to do was one of her books where like the criminal was obvious and it was like somebody who was caught pointing a gun at somebody. And you, the whole story went into circles until you found out that that person did indeed commit the crime. So to me, as an editor, the way for a, for, a, for a reader to be satisfied is to find that you're being led along several paths and then ultimately you're surprised at the end. You know, and, yeah. and, and people like Agatha Christie, the reason why she was just a very successful writer is because she just managed to like make people feel like they were on a roller coaster. And in the end, you just felt like, all your senses were challenged and you're like, Oh my God, I'm slapping myself on the forehead. This was so obvious to me. Yeah. That's, um, 
What was the the murder on the Orient Ex- Express? That was a great example of that. Exactly. I mean, she came up in in my view with like the four the four great twists, and one was the mousetrap, one was death on the Nile, one was murder on the Orient Express, and one was the murder of Roger Ackroyd. I mean, these four twists, I would say, are among in terms of the whole mystery genre, the four greatest twists in mystery novel history. There's, you can't get, out of the, out of the 10 novels that are like my, my favorites, those are the top four twists ever penned by anybody. Wow. Yeah. We- and I'd love to give the plot away, but I don't want to have people call you and send you a nasty email saying, Andrew Gooley destroyed Death on the Nile for me. But I will say, Read Death on the Nile, read The Mousetrap, read The uh, the Murder of Roger Ackroyd, and, the, and Murder on the Orient Express. Okay, good. That's been duly noted and recorded and logged for perpetuity. So um, Excellent. Yes. Now, it was, it was back in, um, I guess it was in 2015, you presented an, an award for Fear, the book Fear, for the Diamond Jubilee, the 75th anniversary, you wrote on here with, with scores of authors influenced by this tour de force in the world of horror, fears as chilling, tense, and as brilliant now as it was when it was published 75 years ago. Andrew Gooley, managing editor of the Strand Magazine, and that was on the Diamond Jubilee or Fear by Elwin Hubbard. What about that that book did you find so like impressive? I mean, it, it's got it's got kudos from all the major names. You know, Boucher had a whole thing about it. Um, Bradbury was said that was his favorite. He actually even made it into a scream uh, into a, a play that he had performed for him, and he wrote a letter to Owen Hubbard about that. It's just it's got so many different people that have said great things about. It. So what about it for you? Made it such a, a great, you know, thriller. Well, the thing about it was this: when I, when I read, oftentimes I'll say I'm going to read about you know ten, fifteen, twenty pages, and I'm just going to go on with the. Uh, go on with the next thing in my life or do some more work. And what I loved about it is when the first time I read it and then the last time I read it, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing that I was turning pages. I just was like, Oh my God. I mean, I read 40 pages of this. What's, you know, this is really, really a fast book. And I like having the author do the work for me. And that's, that's a great example of fear whereby you're not having to go back and read things. Everything is just sit on the table and you're just always being challenged. You're always being like, wait, did this just happen? And you know it did. So you're not going to go back and say, okay, I'm going to read chapter one, or maybe I read a little too quickly. Uh, and it, it's, I know there are different types of genres, but it, fear kind of reminds me of like a Harlan Coben book where there's always this premise of something which is just going to completely challenge how you're seeing everything for example uh, tell no one this man's wife passes away and he sees her picture on a computer screen and a you know and, and like a webcam and she's saying i'm alive tell no one and you're like oh my god how how, how did this thing happen or or there's another book i read by coben and it was about this man who was jilted by his girlfriend and she eventually gets married and he goes to her wedding. She, says she doesn't want anything to do with him. Then a couple of years later, he finds that her husband had died. So he goes to the funeral 
and he sees the wife that's mourning isn't the woman who jilted him, but a completely different person. So, you know, so what I loved about fear is it has that thing where you're always unsettled. You're always, you're always thinking like, can I be wrong? What will happen next? And it's sort of like what Ken Follett said. And he said, the key to a successful novel, and to me, this is fear in a nutshell, is balancing hope with fear. And I love that feeling of like, you're hoping for something, but you're afraid it's not going to happen. And it's a very, very fine balance because most of the books out there can just get into so much of an internal thing of like, oh, okay, this is kind of hopeless. And then so much of them are very predictable. Like, for example, James Bond book, where you know that at the end, James Bond is, you know, he's going to survive and he's going to going to kick everybody's ass <laughs> but but what i liked about fear was there was just this balance between hope and fear and to me that's why it's uh, that's why it, it you know it's it's a classic in its genre because of that yeah and it's definitely one i don't know anybody's ever guessed that ending so that's also a good thing too yeah and that's what i love the end yeah the ending is key like i like i say you know you can, it, it, you know, a, a writer and a, and a book in this type of genre is kind of like a gymnastics, it's like a gymnastics routine where you need to nail the ending. And you can see somebody do all these difficult things. You can see them, you know, do all these somersaults. But if you're not, the ending is the last person or uh, the last thing a person remembers. And when the ending is nailed, like, okay, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So on, um, now for somebody, you know, the, you know, a lot of people that I, that I talked to on this podcast are members of, uh, various writing organizations. Some are, are CIFA, science fiction writers of America, but there's also mystery writers of America. Um, any comments about that, you know, from yourself as, as an editor and as an author? Yeah, the thing about it is this. Uh, the mystery writing community is a very supportive community. Uh, I mean, I've known best-selling writers, and my, my wife is a, is a writer. Her name is Elizabeth Heider, and she's, you know, she hit the bestseller list uh, several times. And, you know, when I, when I started dating her, she would be like, I'd be like, where are you? Where are you going? You know, and she's like, oh, I'm going to go to this meet a writer for coffee and give her some advice or give him some advice about things. So, you know, the, the great thing about the mystery writing community is it's, it's a community which is very supportive. People want to see other people succeed because, frankly, for probably every 100 ma manuscripts submitted, and maybe I'm being generous, one is published. You think you're very, so, you're very generous there. I think I'm generous. Maybe we'll go one, one in 500 or one in, or one in 1,000. So probably people need that. Write it. Yeah, writers need the odds stacked in their favor. And when you join an organization like Mystery Writers of America, uh, Romance Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, which is, I love Sisters in Crime, they're fantastic. It'll put you in with the chapters of your area, for example, the Midwest, the, the South, the Northeast, and the West. And, the, and there are meetings where other writers meet other writers, critique their work, give each other advice about how to market, who to hire, to hire a proofreader, for example. I mean, I know several successful writers who 
have the attitude that they're just not content to rely on themselves, but they'll hire somebody to, you know, give their book that extra polish. Uh, so I think these organizations are, are indispensable for beginning authors. Uh, I mean, the one, the one bit of advice I would also have to give an author is look for your own voice. You know, don't be afraid of other people. Don't feel, don't feel unduly influenced by other writers because, we're all human beings and we all have our innate prejudices about things and our likes and our dislikes. And if you end up handing, uh, if you ended up handing, let's say uh, the murder of Roger Ackroyd to 15 different writers and Agatha Christie ended up getting it, you know, by the time she gave it to her publisher, she would find it would be a much different book and it would probably not resonate as deeply as it did with the uh, millions of readers. So you know, join organizations, but just always understand that you're controlling that that word processor, that computer, that pen to book. You're the god of that moment. Right. So that's that's it. You've talked about this a couple of time now about uh, finding your voice. Make sure you do that. So let's talk about that a bit more because obviously you're you're very well read in in the genre, all the various subgenres of mystery and thriller, suspense. So in turn, is that Obviously, you have to read to be able to know, get also how do people do things and just get familiar with how do you introduce characters? How does a plot evolve? How do you put the twists in there? What's a good twist? What's not a good twist? What gets you going? What doesn't? But I've talked to a lot of authors and they talk about, you know, you have to write as well. You have to read, but you also have to just write and write and write. And I know that, I mean, Hubbard said, throw away your first million words. Um, we've had various authors have said half a million, two million words, just like lose it. That's, you're using that to be able to build your own voice. What's your what's your take on that? That's a great advice. In fact, Ray Bradbury some, said something to the effect that a beginning author shouldn't attempt a first novel until they write a, a story every week for a year. He said, and then I wouldn't be surprised if all your stories are horrible, but at least you'll feel more experienced into taking a book on it. And, you know, I mean, I spoke to somebody years ago who said that they wrote more than they read. And I think you should you should read more than you write. And when you do write, you should just look at it as an exercise and do it every day because it's kind of like going to the gym. If you weight lift, if you weight lift a little every day, you're going to find you're going to be very powerful. And if you just look and you're like, OK, I'm just going to weight lift every month for three hours, you're just going to end up sore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or having to see a chiropractor. Uh, so, I mean, writing is an exercise. It should be done often. It should just also, a person should just not fe hear that critical voice in their head saying, I can't do it, or the chance is small that I'm going to be able to do it. Because obviously, there are a lot of writers who are making a living out of being a writer. So, if you're you're if you're just going to be the quiet person who's just going to go away, that's just going to be mean that your chance is zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that comes up quite frequently too when I when I get authors, you know, and people are like, oh my gosh, this person or that person, the other person, they're just they're so famous. And then you say, okay, so because I know what the answer is going to be is it. So how many rejection ships have you had? Oh, I got 750, oh, I've got 630, or I had 400 before I sold my first work. You know, um, it's just people don't realize that, you know, they, they have their work in this one story and they submit it and it gets rejected. And all of a sudden I'm devastated, I'm ruined. But as an editor now, 
there's other things too that um, are factors. You will publish other works, but it might be too that there's other extenuating circumstances. You just had a story like that three issues ago and you're done with that for the year. You know, so it's not that it's not a good story, but it's also other things too as to why something isn't picked. So explain that a bit. That's a, that's a great point, John. Uh, sometimes the timing isn't right, you know, and what I've found from my experience, and there are many, many more editors with more experience than 20, 24 years, 23 years, yeah. is that determination is the fuel that carries, that wins a day in the end. And I've seen writers who've been very talented. And I remember when I first started out and I was just, you know, I was just more into the editing side of things. And I read a story that was a short story, but I just felt it wasn't right to be put into a magazine at that time. And I, it was some of the best writing I've ever read. And I wrote a long letter to the writer. And, uh, and I said, you know, I love your work. Write a story, make it more of a mystery because you have a unique voice and you're one of the best people I've read. I never got a response. And there was another writer who wrote something with an outlandish plot, you know, which I felt wasn't right for us. And I felt needed more work than, you know, was we were willing to put into it to get it to that stage. And even then I thought like, you know, it would not be, our readers would not appreciate it. Our readers not enjoy it. And that writer went on, just was badgering me constantly. And aren't you going to do this? And aren't you going to do that? And I don't get annoyed because I like to see people who are determined. I like to see people who are their best advocate. But that writer became a very, very successful writer. So, and I've seen this replayed several, several times that the person who is has a little talent, but a lot of determination is going to go much, much further than the person who has a lot of talent, but very little determination. That's a good point, because talent will also improve as you write. You keep on writing, you get better and better and better. Not every day. <laughs> I'm just, I'm being facetious in that there's some, some authors who at a certain stage, they just run out of ideas and they're like dialing it in. And you're like, oh my God, I remember this person 30 years ago. <laughs> what has happened? But, but that is a good point that like for the author who is dedicated more to the craft than to the, uh, to the luxuries <laughs> that, that being a successful author will bring them, uh, they get better and better and better. And in fact, I was talking to Jeffrey Deaver about this is another one of my favorite authors. And, and I said, Jeff, tell me, I said, you've been in this business for almost 40 years. How do you keep it fresh? How do you not get confused with all these crazy plots going into your head? And he said, you know, the way you keep it fresh is you need to combine the organizational mind with the creative mind. He said, because the creative mind is just going to like burn out eventually. And the organizational mind is just going to become their, 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 the organizational mind is going to produce books that are just very dry, uh, very uninventive and very derivative. And I said, well, that must be easier said than done. He said, well, if you have a good idea, you know, incubate it, act like a professional, write a detailed outline. And when you write that detailed outline, 
you're going to have your roadmap to a successful book. He said, but if you're one of those people who just isn't going to decide that you're going to have this great idea and you're just going to carry it along as far as you go, he said, you may meet a dead end. That makes sense. So you've worked with many authors over the years, uh, the major, the big name authors here. Have any of them talked about like their frustrations and, and how they overcame them or how the strand has helped them to get through their frustrations? Well, interestingly, the, one of the authors who we first published in our first issue, he ended up uh, sending his uh, manuscript to a, a partner to critique it, and he fell in love with her, and they ended up getting married. So that's a nice story. <laughs> but uh, but uh, on the basis of, of, of writers who are struggling, I think that now more than ever, particularly among you know mid-list authors and even among successful authors, there is a lot of pressure for them to write one book a year. And at times authors just, they're artistic and they have that artistic temperament. You know, it's not like a Wall Street executive who's just gonna be, you know, mainly a numbers person, doesn't require creativity to become a very good investor or somebody in business or, you know, in, in, in the business side of numbers. Yeah. So authors can feel like, you know, I wanna make this book ready when I feel that it's ready. And the market cannot be very forgiving of them. And publishers can have that attitude of like, this is a business like any, and we need you to come out with this product once a year. So sometimes authors, they, they just feel like, you know, like some of the fun of it can, has gone away because of just the pressures to become very successful. And some very successful authors, they're writing two books a year. So, you know, they authors like, you know, want to spend some more time with their family. They just want to they want they want to have that feeling like that they can interact more with their fans. They can do some more pet projects, but they're looking they're saying to themselves, oh, my God, I have this deadline. I have that deadline. You know, so I think like I think probably like 20 or 30 or 50 years ago, I, authors had the luxury and I think authors were did better financially than they're doing now, that they have the luxury of not being, you know, feeling the heat to write more than they ever have written. Right. Now, with with yourself now, are you more uh, inclined to buy an author who, who gets his books published or stories published through mainstream conventional publishing houses, or do you also do the self-published? Do you have any particular, for yourself, uh, preference? Well, to me, like in the magazine, you always need like one, a couple of big name authors on the cover so that people pick it up from the bookstore. Because like I say, I'm complaining about saying, oh, publishers are feeling pressure. We feel that pressure too. So if I had like John Smith, John Smith, John Smith, like five, top five names in the magazine, I'm going to be hearing it from my, <laughs> from my distributor in Barnes and Nobles and say, Andrew, come on, the sales, you know? So you know, th that's part of the capitalist society where everybody's always feeling, you know, you always need to do better. You always need to like jump through, face the next hurdle. And in terms of authors, we just look at quality. If a person's been published before and they wrote a great book, that's fantastic. If a person's never been published before and they wrote something great, we'll publish them. I mean, sometimes we've had cases where best-selling authors have written stories for us and we're like, we love you, but 
we can't publish this because you're not going to look good and we're not going to look good. Right. So then you, you have no problem telling somebody, even if it's a big name author, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, we, you can't because, you know, at the end of the day, we have to, uh, you know, we don't want people to look and say, God, this magazine is just like a, uh, you know, it's like a receptacle for people who are successful, but not writing something that they're proud of or that the magazine is proud of. Right. So um, for someone to want to be able to, is there a particular line that people have if they want to write, if they've got like a story they want to be able to submit, how they would uh, do that? Uh, we have uh, guidelines we'll send them if they send us an email to submissions at strandmag.com. We'll send them guidelines and they can submit a story to us electronically. Okay. Now you've got a print magazine, but you've also got online as well. So how does that work? Is it, it's not just you take the print magazine and throw it online. It's, it's kind of like it expands the world of the Strand I'm, I'm, from what I remember. Yeah, we have a blog that has uh, like, probably i think think about 1500 articles in it and we have interviews with some of the top authors uh uh, best stuff lists like the best spy novels of all time the best agatha christie the great cozy mysteries of all time so we've reviews dvd reviews uh writing tips we have hundreds of articles about writing tips so we've expanded into that and that's brought us a lot of uh, you know interest on the website and a lot of authors are just very excited because, for example, if I've interviewed Michael Connolly once, I'm not going to interview him again, because what are we going to talk about? But you have you can have some of these leading authors who will have a little Q&A with them about their latest book. And that way, things are fresh. People aren't going to look at a Michael Connolly interview published from 12 years ago and be like, OK, he's done a lot since then. So that that's just been very exciting because... I'm one of these types of people where I don't like rejecting people. I don't like if a, if a writer is like, hey, I have this idea, and I'll say, I'm sorry, but there's no space in a, in a magazine to put this in where this is something whereby the writer will get a lot of attention, and I don't have to say no. <laughs> I can say, hey, you know, we can publish this on the blog. So you publish short stories as well on the blog? Yeah, limited short stories in the blog. We're, we're working on a venture where we publish some more stuff of that nature in the blog, and we'll make an announcement about that. Right. But it's mainly uh, articles. Okay. So we've got about 10 minutes left here, so there's still a bunch of stuff that I'm interested in finding out about and on, on the whole thing of between mystery and science fiction and the aspiring writer. So aspiring writer... I mean, that's mostly who's going to be listening to this podcast. We have some who are, who are writers, too, that just are interested in various topics that we cover. But in order to get into and make it into uh, the mystery world, because you said that's 20% of all books sold are, are mystery. And, and while Hollywood probably has a much higher percentage of, of the movies that are science fiction, the, uh, the publishing side of things, is, is, I think it's like 10% or so. So it's... It's, it's less than the, the mystery. So what have you found has been the, like some of the best tips or some of the best things that, that a, an aspiring author should do to break in? You've got the conventions, there's writing groups, there's uh, MWA, Mr. Writers of America, there's um, getting to know, you know, people who know people getting in, getting an editor. What have you found or what would you recommend or some of the, the more um, comfortable ways to go? 
Uh, I would say that, you know, one of the main things is to just have your vision. Have your vision and don't let anybody try to knock you off your stride. I mean, because all too often, you know, I mean, there's an old saying like everybody's a writer, everybody's a poet. But, you know, that's kind of simplifying things that there's just so many people who have this innate talent, but are just so afraid of criticism. And the probably the five points I would give authors are just stick to your vision. Don't let anybody throw you off. The other thing is, if you're going to work at it, be a professional, just set a time every day to write or read. The other thing is know your market, like look through the bestseller list at Publishers Weekly or the New York Times, know what the market is doing. The other thing is don't try to hop on the bandwagon of something. If everybody's publishing a science fiction story or a mystery novel set in Scandinavian country, by the time you get your novel published about it, nobody's going to be interested in. Uh, And then the other thing is come up with an idea, you know, look at the news, look at other books, look at newspapers, enrich your mind so that your mind is ripe to come up with an original idea. And then once you have that nugget of an original idea, then you can set up, you know, you can take a a notebook or a blank piece of paper and then, draw a circle around it and then draw that unique idea that you have and then branch it out into characters and into a plot. And you could very well have the outline of a novel or a short story in one big piece of paper. Uh, But it just comes with that original idea, that nugget of an idea. And it's just, you know, it can just mushroom into something wonderful. I get it. And I mean, I remember it, um, I think I've attended three Boucher cons over the last while. And I've seen a lot of, um, there's a lot of authors there, obviously a lot of mystery writers that are there. And I've seen these huge halls filled with people then that are like um, basically pushing their books. You know, they're there and they're the authors that are there, like here's either with uh, chapter books or some of them have actual, the books to have. Is that something that has, that you've observed to be uh, valuable? Well, what I always tell people is this. I mean, I if you want to be one of those people who goes to every single convention, it can really get out of hand financially for a writer. You know, if, if a person's like a leading engineer or architect or an attorney and you have the time off and the me or physician and, you know, if you're very successful financially, it's no problem. But for the average person, airfare, hotel, all of this, this can it can really add up. So, but what I always tell people is, you know, go to some of these conventions. Don't like have the attitude if you're going to, you're going to be like, I'm not going to have conventions. I'm just going to be very, you know, I'm just going to be very parochial in my ways. I'm like, I'm just going to do this and do that. Do whatever you can in the most economic way you can do it. But if you want to be a successful writer, you you shouldn't be one of the person who with your advance puts a hot tub, (laughs) buys a hot tub or goes on a, on a three week European vacation. You have to understand that, you know, publishers, uh, you know, they're just, they don't have the staff to just do what needs to be done for your book to make, get it to that next level. You need to help them and you need to help them by, working on marketing your book, working on becoming a publicist, 
for your book, working on doing whatever you can to make sure people read your book. And, you know, the the key to success is, to me, success as an author is like pushing a big boulder off of a hill. And if you go to a convention, that's a couple of inches. If you publicize like crazy, that's another. If you do advertising and marketing, that's another. And you can find that you're doing all of that and that boulder won't move very far. But if you don't do any of it, you're just kind of guaranteeing that you need to be very lucky to get to that next level. Got it. So that, that makes sense on that stuff. So now your, your magazine, obviously you're, in, you're very much in, in the world of the internet. Um, it's, a, it's a print magazine, but in order to get it known and to reach new audiences and to make it global, you've got your internet that you work with. Is that a, is that a big thing also for the, for the writer from your perspective? It is. I mean, nowadays, I mean, people could just research is at their fingertips. When I was when I was a young man, everything would have to have to go to the bookstore and read all about writing. And now you can look up quotes, you can get inspiration on the Internet, you can read the news. There's just it's such a great world and it's such a great time to be a writer. And if you have a little talent, there's no excuse for you not to just use these the means at your disposal that were not around like 30 years ago to to help you to inspire you and to drive you to success i get it yeah we've uh we created this um the Owen hubbard writers the future online writing workshop which is a, a free online online course which we've had i mean obviously rise of the future of science fiction fantasy alternate history We've had people writing all genres take the course and they said, I, I finished my course and I just sold my first story to a mystery magazine, you know, type thing where that, that's come back to us. Because um, some of the basics of writing apply no matter what genre you're writing, that's still, and this goes back to you got to read, but some of these different, I guess, tools that you use to be able to start a story, they get a person immediately hooked on a story to, to pull through so that you're not aware that you're turning the pages like you're talking about with fear. Um, there are yeah. some basic rules on that. So that's something that, that we've done. It's been very successful. We've got over 5,000 people on the course now, or either on the course or have finished oh, the course. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's, we've got people from, I think, about 110 countries now taking the course. It's been, it's been real successful. Yeah. But um, I guess, you know, with, with respect to the mystery genre, how do you see it's going right now in terms of the, the future of, of mystery? You got the, you're talking about the modern, but is there going to be like a recycling back to some of the earlier stuff you mentioned a little bit about Agatha Christie, like a return? Is it like, how's it moving? Well, I think it's moving in a very, it's darker than it's ever been. If you were to look at some of the best selling mysteries right now, you would see that, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I, I think that some of the more lighthearted books are not doing as well as some of the more things that are into the inner sanctum. I mean, it's getting bloodier. A good development is, is that diversity is kind of being something that publishers have realized that they need to publish a diverse set of, of uh, authors and uh, diverse voices. And to me, that's that's something that I'm very happy about because I just feel that it's been about time. I mean, uh, Richard Wright, I was reading one of his books and he's a, you know, he's a great writer and I'm hoping that we see a resurgence of people like Chester Himes. And there's this, it's, it's, it's a good thing now that 
the mystery novel shelf is looking more like a melting pot than it's ever looked before. So to me, I, I'm very pleased to I'm very pleased to see that uh, because you know I, I just great. I don't like the predictable and part of the yeah I, I never like I always like something that's going to keep me guessing you know yeah so then in terms of um, as we come to close here any particular tips that you'd give then just you've given a lot throughout here but just as a in summation like the end of the story is the part that you're going to remember quote unquote <laughs> so. The um, anything in particular that you say this is these are some of the key tips that a person that wants to write mystery or specifically science fiction mystery that you would that you would uh, offer up here. Well, my thing, my, one of the main things I always tell writers, and maybe this is you know this is predictable, but when you look at that page, the page has to have a certain aesthetic to it, and if you have a page where you just like have a lot of white in the page that means that you're just relying too much on dialogue. And if you print out that page and you find that there's not a lot of white, there's just, you know, ink, too much ink, then you're describing too much. So I would tell writers to just, in the words of Elmer Leonard, leave the words that, leave the parts that people skip out of your book. And when you write, make sure that there's a balance between description and make sure the description is cut by dialogue and action. Because too much description, you're gonna you're gonna have authored the cure for insomnia. Too much writing, you're gonna feel like it's a play, and too much action, and it's gonna feel like it's a screenplay. So you just need to look at that page and make sure it's balanced out completely. Where there's like some description, some dialogue, a little action, some more description. So that the so that like fear and some of these other fantastic good page turners that they're just carrying you along the way and you're not going to be like oh my god I'm stranded. That's very good advice. I've never heard that before. That's that's really good advice. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. This has been amazing. I knew it would be, but uh, now that we're at the end of the end of this hour, um, it really has been. I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk on this podcast here. My pleasure, John. Great to talk with you as always, and I hope to be able to see you soon. Absolutely on that. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, I highly recommend you read the Writers of the Future series. These are, after all, who our judges have selected as the best of the best new writers and artists. They can be found at writersofthefuture.com, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the inspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks, John. 